Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter is our text for this morning. Um, in the weeks to follow here, Lord willing, our plan is to study through, uh, through this letter and to do so in a, in a more uh, concentrated, focused way, uh, text by text, uh, section by section. Um, and last Sunday, in a pol- preliminary way, we asked uh, to kind of introduce this book, we asked and answered the question, uh, what does it mean to stand firm in the Lord's strength? Um, or to use Peter's words at the end of the uh, letter here in chapter 5 and, and verse 12, what does it mean to stand firm in the true grace of God? And we attempted in our own, um, in my own uh, kind of a humble way to answer this question because we said it's foundational to understanding the book as a whole. Uh, if we're going to be faithful to the text and really wrap our minds around its truth, we need to understand this. Peter's aim or purpose in this letter is to teach all of us, all who will read it, how to live in a dark and hostile world and to persevere in faith and arrive at that heavenly rest at Christ's coming. I mean, that's the purpose of, of this letter of this book. And 1 Peter is a reality check for God's people to remind us that this world, uh, this life we live in the flesh before God, uh, is a battle. It is a battle for the Christian. Um, We must think of ourselves as soldiers, as people in the army of the living God who are always on the front lines, deployed in conflict against the evil one. And the image that we should keep in our mind kind of in the back of our mind, but definitely in our mind, is this idea of, of troops deployed in conflict. And some of you, some of you have even uh, been there and done that. The Christian life, we said, is one of warfare. But of course, it's not physical warfare. Um, our, Paul says our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, um, but it is rather spiritual in nature. It is spiritual warfare. It is one of conflict within as we deal with our flesh and our hearts and, and the sin that so easily entangles us. But it's also a, a struggle against standing firm against Satan and his deceptive schemes, which are everywhere and always before us in a, in a, in a world that is ruled by the prince of the power of the air. Now, that said, it doesn't mean that there's a demon under every dinner plate either, so we don't want to go to the far extreme. (laughs) Every time you stub your toe, every time you get a cold, every time you have a setback at work, or every time your battery dies in your car, it is not some kind of demonic attack, and it would be uh, presumptuous upon us to, to think that it is. But at the same time, we also shouldn't pretend as though there aren't real spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, because Paul says that there are. And that those, uh, those forces stand in opposition to God, they stand in opposition to the gospel, they stand in opposition to his truth advancing in the hearts and lives of men. Those are real struggles that we face. We have a genuine spiritual fight on our hands, and we really shouldn't be surprised then that the Christian life is one of, of uh, struggle, uh, spiritual struggle. But the question then becomes practically, how do you and I stand firm in the midst of that? How do we do that? Um, and how do we go about it in the Lord's strength? And we said it's not some lightning bolt strike from heaven. It's not a, kind of a higher life theology of letting go and letting God. We said it's not some specially worded prayer like an incantation that unlocks the floodgates of God's power. 
It's not a matter of grit or willpower. We noted it's also not f- driven by external motivations, fleshly motivations like um, fear of man or pride or some preserving our personal reputation or spite or anything like that. When the Bible, we said, talks about standing firm in God's strength, we, me- we said it means cultivating and maintaining a settled conviction in the character and the commandments of God, and that compels us by the Spirit to obey God in all of life's circumstances. It is obedience, then, in all or any and all of life's circumstances that, that rises out of a settled conviction in the character and the commandments of God. It is Spirit-wrought capacity. So standing firm in God's strength, we said, isn't a passive thing like waiting around for the bus. It's active. It's an active process that we engage in. And we use this analogy of sailing. Sailing is a very active process. You're, you're constantly assessing the direction of the wind, the angle of your sail in, in relationship to the wind, the nature of where you're trying to go, your destination, and so forth in your course. And you're always, uh, at, uh, always kind of trimming and making adjustments. And at the end of the day, though, if, if, sail, if a true sailboat with no motor on it is going to go from point A to point B, there, the, it is the power of the wind that pushes and moves the boat and strengthens the boat. And so our job, uh, as a, your job as a sailor, is to trim the sails to tap into the wind's power. And we said in, a, in the same way, the sailor actively positions himself to tap into the Lord's strength and to, to draw upon his power as we are actively trimming the sails of our heart to lay hold of it. So when we cultivate and we maintain this conviction, this settled conviction in the character of God, in the commandments of God, we are trimming, as it were, the sails of our hearts to harness the full capacity of God's strength to get us, uh, to carry us along in the Christian life. And we broke it down into even more um, granular uh, notions. We, We looked at three foundational realities. First, we said you must embrace your weakness. Right? That, that's foundational to standing firm in the Lord's strength. First Peter 5 makes it clear that God is opposed to the proud. He is not um, in competition with you. If you're going to be a proud person, God says, I'm not going to compete with that. Uh, and he, but he says he will give grace to the humble, and that's what we need. He says, so humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. So acknowledging and embracing our weakness is critical. That's foundational to tapping into God's strength. Because if you think you can do it on your own, God says, okay, go ahead, go for it. We'll see how that turns out for you. And he's obviously, we, we know that we will fail. But um, secondly, we said we need to know our enemy. And that is, that is also foundational. Critical to standing firm is knowing the adversary. And the scripture says that he is a formidable adversary. He is described in 1 Peter 5 as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And of course, he is not physical. You can't touch him. You can't uh, see him with your eyes in the physical world, but yet he is spiritual. And so we learn that our adversary is a physical, is not a physical adversary, but a spiritual one. And that he is not stupid. He is not haphazard. The scripture says he is, he is uh, fully versed in the scriptures and all are his demons who work in concert with him. He often, scriptures, Paul says, disguises himself as an angel of light. And so we have to be discerning. We have to be alert. He comes at us not from 
straight on. Often he comes at us from an angle or ways that we may not anticipate. He, he will tempt us from without and he will tempt us from within. Uh, all of these things are true. So we must know our enemy. Thirdly, we said to stand firm in the Lord's strength, you must feed your soul. That's vital. Like Paul, uh, Peter says in chapter 2, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. We said no newborn child is going to grow or thrive physically without an adequate diet of mother's milk or formula or something like that. And Peter says no believer ever grows or thrives spiritually unless they have a steady diet of the word of God in their hearts and lives. So we have to constantly, verse 1, put to death the deeds of the flesh, right? Laying aside malice, deceit, hypocrisy, all the, all the deeds of the flesh, and hunger after the word. We said hungry Christians, ones that are growing, are the ones that are taking in the word of God and studying it. They, are know it, they want to know it. They also are stru- uh, striving to obey it. And, they are grow, and through that, they grow spiritually. It's like working out a muscle. The more you work it out, the stronger you become. The less you work it out, the more atrophied and weak we become. And we said you can't have a settled conviction in God's character and commandments if you just have a very passing acquaintance with them. So foundational. You have to pursue them. You have to study them. Uh, the, the Puritans made a real high uh, and important uh, emphasis on meditating on the word of God. And it doesn't mean emptying your mind. It means to turn it over in your mind until the roughness of the diamond is cut and polished and, 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 the, and it's then ultimately set in the beauty of a transformed life. So this brings us, well, this is all that we looked at last Sunday, but this brings us to the opening verses of the letter. Having dealt with some of these foundational realities, I think this morning it's appropriate for us to look at the book as a whole, to see the totality of it. And we'll do that just by looking at the, the salutation, the introduction, but we're going to look at the whole book. Like Moses, remember in the Old Testament, Moses was taken up to the Pisgah, the mountain, to see the whole of the promised land before the people were to go in. Of course, he was not to go in, but in Deuteronomy 34, he could see all the land of promise. And that's kind of what I want to do this morning. We're going to go up to the mountain, as it were, and get a lay of the land that is First Peter. We want to get a, a, an, a, an understanding of it. And what we're going to see is how God intends for you and for me to press on to the heavenly rest that he has promised to all who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. So uh, we just want to look at the opening verses, chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. You'll notice here, as uh, this letter begins, like any first century letter, it starts off with the name of the sender, followed by the name of the intended audience, recipients of that letter, and usually the letters ended with some kind of word of blessing or benediction. Uh, in, the, in the secular world, that was more of a kind of a, 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 a well-wishing of health and strength. 
But the Christian uh, letters that we have in Scripture uh, adapted that to speak of grace and peace and those uh, spiritual realities being multiplied or, or poured out upon the recipients. This letter, we see, obviously, is written by Peter, the apostle. And we know him well. He was one of the 12 disciples who traveled with our Lord throughout his earthly ministry. Peter, the fisherman. Peter, whose foot was often in his mouth. Peter, who betrayed Christ three times at his trial. And Peter, who was forgiven and restored and then went on to preach those mighty evangelistic sermons in the early days of the church. The church has always recognized that this letter has come from his hand. It's not really even up for debate. It never was. And it's no surprise that the one who is so acquainted, who is so acquainted with the grace of God, is the, the, the one whom God is going to tap to, to write about suffering and trusting in the, in the strength which God supplies. So this is just, this, the obvious uh, author of this letter is Peter. We don't debate that at all, and neither should anyone else. His primary audience, the recipients of the letter, are various churches that are scattered about throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Um, these are areas that you and I would associate today with modern-day Turkey. <clears throat> No doubt, these churches would have been a diverse mixture of Gentile and Jewish believers, with a majority of these churches probably being Gentile in nature. Uh, why do we say that? Well, if you look at verse 18 of chapter 1, he speaks about these individuals and their futile way of life that they inherited from their forefathers. Uh, later on in chapter uh, 4, he will speak uh, of their days of having run its course in all manner of sensuality and drunken carousing and abominable idolatries, and, and he lists some several things there. That's probably not how he would have summed up the lives of his uh, converted Jewish brethren before Christ. They didn't, they, they didn't know Christ, and they didn't often have a true knowledge of God, but they didn't necessarily uh, condone this kind of lifestyle that, that was so common amongst the Gentile converts. And so um, it's, it's, it's probable that, these are a prime, that the audience he's writing to, he assumes, are mostly Gentile in nature. But far more important than their ethnic heritage here, and this is what we want to focus in on, is their spiritual heritage. Their spiritual heritage which Peter emphasizes right out of the gate there in verse, uh, in verse 2. He's not so much concerned about whether they're Jewish or Gentile. That's not really his thing. Because as he says in verse 1, they are what? Chosen. They are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. And so in these opening, uh, in these opening verse we see the spiritual heritage of the individual believers that he's writing to, which is ultimately true of every one of us who are in Christ this morning. And that is that we have been chosen by God, having become his adopted children. And this saving work, like all the triune God's works, are inseparable from one another. The Father, he says, has chosen us in eternity past. The Spirit, he says, has sanctified us, having regenerated us and sealed us 
with his indwelling presence. The Son has, for once and for all, sprinkled us clean inside and outside through his atoning death, which is an allusion to the, the sprinkling of blood that the Old Testament saints experienced uh, uh, by the animal sacrifice that, that temporarily and externally cleansed them from their sin under the Old Covenant. So from the very outset, as you look at this letter, Peter's addressing his audience, not as Jewish or Gentile or Cappadocian or slave or, or male or female or any other earthly designation. From the outset, Peter addresses believers in Christ's church as God's chosen, sanctified, sprinkled people. The, and that's important. That, you know, we, we kind of tend to blow past these introductory comments, but they, these have real weight to them. Listen, the world that we live in now loves, loves to slap labels on people, right? It's a way of identifying yourself and even defining your existence, right? I'm white. You're a minority. So-and-so is a victim of abuse. I'm an addict. You're a millennial, and not, you know, whatever labels you want to put on yourself. And the more labels you have affixed to your chest, the more individual boxes you put yourself in, the more you are empowered, so they say. And to, you're able to live out your authentic and true self, and, and that makes you somewhat important. But what Peter makes clear here is that there is one label that every believer has affixed to their chest, and it's a label that dwarfs every other label you could possibly fix upon yourself. And that is chosen of God. Chosen of God. If you have put your faith in Christ this morning, you need to understand that you have been chosen by the Father, you have been sanctified by the Spirit, and you have been sprinkled clean with the blood of Jesus Christ. This is your identity. This is what defines you as a person. And no matter what else happens to you, come what may, all other lights that you view yourself in pale in comparison to the reality that you stand in the, glaze, the blazing glory of Christ and that you are a child of the living God. Like, this is who you are. You say, well, why is this important, Jeff? What does it matter? And even specifically, why does it matter for Peter as he kind of gets into the material here? It's important because viewing yourself rightly and myself rightly is essential, as we're going to see, to skillfully living and navigating all the challenges and suffering of this present life and standing firm. You need to understand, and I need to understand, who we are in Christ. Peter was preparing these believers for a season when they as Christians would be pushed to the very margins of society when they would be persecuted, when they would be cast aside by friends and family and neighbors and anyone else who would look upon them. And he says, when that happens, you will feel a very real temptation to think God has forgotten me. God has, God's love for me as his child has failed. God has not been faithful to his promises. I mean, what other explanation could there possibly be for what I'm enduring? And what Peter aims to do here is to convince every reader of this letter that whatever happens to them in this life, God has not forgotten. 
No matter what they experience, God's love for his children never fails. His promises are true, and they are as true as they have ever been in their lives. And even when you are pushed, he said, to the outer margins of of a sin-cursed world that rages against God, that hates the truth, he wants them to understand, he wants us to understand that you're standing in the very center of God's plan. This is the heart of this letter. Now, Peter goes about this task in four parts, four parts. Um, and we can break it down into, uh, from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 10. We see that they are set apart. God, uh, Peter emphasizes that they are set apart. In chapter 2, verse 11, to chapter 4, verse 11, we see that they are sojourning. They are strangers and aliens in the world. In chapter 4, verse 12, to chapter 5, verse 5, he explains that they will suffer. And then he ends in chapter 5, verse 6, to the end of the chapter, end of the book, end of the letter, in verse 14, reminding them that they will stand firm. And that's our outline for this morning. So um, don't worry if you didn't get all the references there. We'll get you, get it again. So beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 2 and verse 10, Peter reminds us that as believers, we have been set apart to God. We have been set apart to God. To be a disciple of Christ is to be chosen before the foundation of the world and to be his beloved son, his beloved daughter. Right? We are chosen, he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, <clears throat> by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. So all throughout, though, this opening section, Peter uses imagery reminiscent of alluding to uh, that of Old Testament Israel as he speaks about us. Like Israel, we are chosen. Like Israel, we have been chosen. Uh, you remember God took Abraham out of the land of Ur and he set his love on him. And then as, as he pulls him out and he gives the promises to then Isaac, and then to Jacob, and then he makes a nation out of them. And as they're ready to enter the promised land in Deuteronomy, he says, he reminds them, he says, I set my love on you, not because you were some great nation. You weren't even anything. He says, but because of my grace. And Peter's already made clear to us here in these opening verses that the triune God has set his love on us and that that is not some hastily cobbled together plan B. It was according, he said, to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit and on account of the sprinkled blood of Christ's death. You go elsewhere in Scripture and see the same thing. Ephesians chapter 1 comes to mind here where Paul speaks about how God chose every believer before the foundation of the world. And it was done, he says, uh, that choice, that electing love was, was or that electing choice was done in love. He says it was done according to the kind intention of his will. So if you're in Christ this morning, you can take heart because God's saving grace has rested on you before time even began, which is a wonderful thing to hold on to. You've been at the center of God's plan of redemption since before the universe existed. 
1 Peter 1 and verse 5, he tells us that those who are in Christ are protected by the power of God through faith. In chapter 1 and verse 14, he, he points out that he speaks of us as, uh, in Christ, as, he talk, speaks of us as obedient children. In chapter 2 and verse 9, believers in Christ's church are spoken of as being a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. The point being, if God's held us, and this is, this is Peter's point, if God has held us in the palm of his hand since before eternity, since before time was, if we are protected by the power of God in the present, if we're God's personal possession, being his adopted children, how could he ever let us go? I mean, any parent knows it is unfathomable that you would ever utterly forsake your own flesh and blood children. You may have a broken relationship with them, but at the end of the day, your love for them runs so deep, you would never utterly forsake them. How much more impossible must it be for our infinite and loving Heavenly Father to forsake his own children? So we, like Israel, they have been chosen. We have been chosen. Secondly, like Israel, we've been redeemed. We've been redeemed. When Israel found themselves in bondage in Egypt, God redeemed them, he says, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He did that by the blood of a Passover lamb. But Peter here in this opening section says the redemption that Israel experienced foreshadowed the greater redemption accomplished with the perfect lamb of God, that is Jesus Christ. And look at verse 18 of chapter 1. He says, know this, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Christ's shed blood for us at the cross has brought his people out of the bondage of sin and death forever. His shed blood, his atoning work have accomplished in other words, in some ways, a new exodus through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who was the firstborn from the dead. And that's why he says, and we'll get into this next Sunday in verses 3, 4, and 5, that we have been born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So like Israel, we've been chosen. Like Israel, we've been redeemed. And like Israel, we are en route to a future inheritance. We are en route to a future inheritance. When God redeemed Israel and he took them out of Egypt, he did so with the aim of fulfilling his covenant promise to them that he would give them the land of Canaan. That was his promise. That was to be, that land was to be their future inheritance, even though they'd never actually possessed it. And in a similar way, not in an exact way, but in a similar way, God has led us out of bondage from our futile way of life before Christ, and he has also given us an inheritance. But it's one that's far, far greater than the land of Israel. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance 
Is it a land? No. Which is imperishable, that is undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith, for a salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. The inheritance that we have in Christ as a believer is nothing short of the new creation. It is the new creation where every tear will be wiped away, where death will no longer exist, where mourning, uh, the Re- John says in Revelation, and crying and pain will cease to be forever. He says, because the first things have passed away. So these opening verses of chapter uh, of, of the book in chapters 1 and 2 Uh, Paint the picture of God's chosen and redeemed people having been let out of bondage and like Israel are strangers and exiles. They're sojourning, not yet home, but moving toward a future inheritance. That's what you see here. Which leads us into the second part of the book, beginning in chapter 2 and verse 11, that carries all the way through to chapter 4 and verse 11. Peter instructs, God's redeemed people, how to live as aliens and strangers as they travel along this wilderness sojourn. So that's the second heading, set apart. Secondly, sojourning. To be a child of the living God is to be beloved. It is to be showered with all the spiritual privileges that come with being in Christ, being a child of the King of Kings, but it also means In this life that we reside as aliens and strangers scattered about in a foreign land. This world is not our final home. (laughs) Thank the Lord. (laughs) Just as as the the wilderness wasn't Israel's final home either, right? They came out of Egypt and where do they go? They went into the wilderness for 40 years. We're introduced to this strategy in... um, this, this, the way we're to go about life here in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. Aliens, that term can refer to, uh, you know, not from outer space, but aliens in the sense of uh, people who are not native, living in a foreign land. Resident aliens might be, sojourners might be described. So the, they're there. It's not like they just snuck in, but they're there living, but it's not really their home. I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. And he says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Verses 11 and 12 give us a strategy for living as strangers and aliens, for sojourning in this world. And the strategy is simple. As God's chosen, redeemed, sanctified people, he says, live a transformed life inside and out before a watching world. Live a transformed life inside and out before a watching world. And in doing so, we overthrow the fallen kingdoms of this world, not by deposing them, not by exerting force and power over them, but by dying to self. That's the strategy. 
And you see that kind of laid out in the, in the sections that follow. In 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17, we're called to submit to the governing authorities, honoring them, doing right, loving others as those created in God's image. He says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king or to governors, or, and he says, for such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. He says, you're free, but don't use your freedom as an as an excuse for evil, verse 16. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. In verses 18 to 25, slaves were instructed to submit to their masters, even those who traded them unjustly so that they might walk in the footsteps of Christ, who himself suffered unjustly to bear the curse for our sins. In chapters three, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, Peter instructs wives to be submissive in their attitude toward their husbands and to model godly behavior to win their hearts. Likewise, husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way, recognizing that they are also fellow heirs of the grace of life. In chapter 3, verses 8 to 12, Peter reminds them that, that we're to keep our eye on the future prize and to do good to all men, all men. Verse 8, to sum up, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. He says, for this is your inheritance. You were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. And then he quotes Psalm 34. <clears throat> in verses 13 to 25 of chapter 3, we're instructed not to walk about fearing what the world fears. He alludes to Isaiah 8. He says, don't fear what they fear. Don't be intimidated by the things that the world is upset about. Walk in obedience to God. And he says, and if you suffer for it, take heart, you are blessed. And then in chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, Peter tells us that Christ suffered in the flesh, and we who are in Christ can expect the exact same thing. But as we humble ourselves and do what is pleasing to him, forsaking sin and keeping fervent in our love for one another, he says God is glorified. There's a common thread that runs through all of these sections. And uh, we'll get into it as we study the letter together. But the common thread that runs through this whole, sec this whole second section is the advancement of the gospel. It's the advancement of the gospel. Christians subvert this present world by dying to self to advance the gospel. For Peter, I mean, there's really no way around it. The spread of the gospel is more important than being treated fairly. I mean, as you read this, as you study it, you're going to see... I think what is obvious when you get into it, that the spread of the gospel, the advancement of the gospel is more important to Peter than being treated fairly in this life. He values the gospel more than justice, which is crazy. You may say, why would he do that? Well, because he understands that the gospel secures eternal salvation, that the reward of the gospel is eternal, Whereas justice in this life is temporal and fleeting and transitory. 
this is just so counterintuitive to how we think, isn't it? We can't fathom dying to self now for an eternal reward. It's, it, we just don't think like that. I've got to get what's due me. And Peter says, no, actually you don't. You don't. There's a third section in the book here that begins in chapter 4, verse 12, and runs all the way to chapter 5 and verse 5. We're reminded that we are set apart. We're reminded in the second section that we're traveling along this wilderness sojourn. And as such, thirdly, we will endure suffering. As believers, we will endure suffering. If we are given to thinking that life lived along this pilgrim path for Christ exempts us from suffering, Peter stands ready to recalibrate those expectations in our hearts. Verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, he says, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the re- revelation of Jesus, uh, of his glory, excuse me, you may rejoice with exaltation. The argument is a simple one. Christ suffered, and Peter says, those who are in Christ will suffer with him. Does that mean we're under God's judgment? When we're being persecuted, when we're being struck down, when we're being uh, mocked, if we, are, um, if we are marginalized, he says, no, not at all. Verse 14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed but to glorify God in this name. He says, as you walk in obedience to the word, if that leads to suffering, it may, it may not. It may be more intense at times and less intense at others. It's not going to look the same for everybody in every situation. But if you suffer as a Christian, he says, you are blessed. If you're persecuted, if you are marginalized, if you are cast out for being a believer in Christ, he says, you and I shouldn't be ashamed of that, but should give glory to God that we have been counted worthy to suffer for the name. Whatever hardships we endure in Christ and for Christ, not for being a stubborn, obnoxious sinner, but for struggling to live obediently and suffering for it, he says, anything we endure for Christ's Christ's sake is a drop in the proverbial bucket because, as he says at the end of chapter 4, it'll be far, far worse for those outside of Christ at the end of the age. He says, if judgment begins with the household of God, what will it be like for those outside? And he ends this section in chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, with a word of instruction for elders, for pastors, He says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, 
not yet as lording it over those accorded to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. So there's a special word of instruction for leaders, elders, pastors in the church to set a godly example for the flock in these things. This is our responsibility to model suffering well. Our responsibility is to exercise humble leadership, a willing service, joyful service, so that we can help those entrusted to our care do the same thing, to equip them for the work. And of course, the reward that is held out in front of us as under-shepherds of Christ's flock is the same reward that God holds out to every believer, and that is, he says at the end of verse 4, the unfading crown of glory. The unfading crown of glory. So 1 Peter is quite a sales pitch for the Christian life, isn't it? Come to Jesus and suffer. Fiery ordeals. Don't be surprised. Judgment started for God's household, but think about how much worse it'll be for unbelievers. I feel like as I read through this and study it and kind of wrap my mind around it, Peter's in the bubble-bursting business. And all of that would be very deflating if it weren't for the last section. The last section in chapter 5, verse 6, to the end of the book here in verse 14. In chapter six, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 6 to 14, Peter teaches us that those who are set apart, those who are sojourning, and those who are suffering can, by God's grace, stand firm. Verse 6, therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But he says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And he says, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. What God commands his beloved children to do in this letter, he empowers them to do. That's comforting, right? Humble yourself, he says, and Christ will exalt you. Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. Suffer a little while, and he who called you will perfect and confirm and strengthen and establish you. This is what he promises. And so the pattern as we read through this letter is clear. In this life, struggle, submission, suffering. And in the life to come, establishment, exaltation, eternal glory. This is what it is. If we get them mixed up, we're going to be struggling more than we even need to. This life is hard enough. We don't want to go about it in the wrong way. It just reminds us what Jesus said, right? He who comes after me, who, who, he, the one who takes, uh, falls after me, says, must take up his cross daily. What? Follow me. 
It's a, it's a dying to self. This is what we do. Th- this is how we live. Right? Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. And so we're left with the final question, for what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits himself? Right? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words and the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. And so we're reminded that as we walk with Christ, that we suffer. And that just isn't real appealing to a watching world that sees Christ as a means to their ends. But the ends that we're called to to pursue, the prize that we're pressing on toward, uh, is the prize that is eternal glory. So that's what's before us. We're going to learn how to do all these things in greater detail as we work through it. And we begin next Sunday looking at verses 3 to 6. We look at this internal inheritance that he's promised to those who have been set apart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, thank you for letters like 1 Peter. You know, we, we are, as Christians here in this context, in this world, probably don't really even understand what suffering for Christ looks like. We think about our brothers and sisters across the world who literally take their lives in their hands to profess trust uh, uh, make a public testimony of, of belief in Jesus <clears throat> and to live transparently before the world in that way is to invite all manner of uh, persecution, all manner of uh, harassment. Um, it is to be treated as the dregs of society. And Lord, there may be a time when we are called to endure that as well. But even now we struggle at times with... Um, uh, the things that we believe being mocked and uh, scorned and looked down upon. And, and Lord, help us to stand firm in those situations. Help us not to compromise. Help us to embrace that this, this world is not our home. And as we do that, Lord, help us to, to, uh, to travel along this, this pilgrim road and arrive at our heavenly destination. Lord, we know that you are faithful to your promises. We're protected by the power of God even now, so our hearts are full. Lord, bless us and strengthen us to live for you this week in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.